let us pray. So, Father, we do indeed pray that you would take our hearts and mold and shape and renew and seal them so that we are more fully conformed to the image of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you here this morning. And again, good morning to everyone watching via the live stream. So glad you've joined us as well. And it's good to be back from vacation, a time of refreshment. Vacation was a little different for us this year. Um, Tammy and Eliana, by the way, are still there. They'll come back the end of this week um, in California visiting Tammy's family. But we started the um, vacation with a family wedding. And then while we were there, Tammy's grandmother, who's a wonderful, wonderful Christian lady who'd been battling dementia for quite a few years, passed away. So we started the um, vacation with a family wedding, and then this past Thursday concluded it, my part of the vacation, at least with a family funeral. Um, but, but still a good vacation and just um, that wonderful comfort we have because Tammy's grandmother had been a um, servant of Christ for many, many, many years. And so she's in heaven and healed and has her mind back at this point. So we're very grateful for that. Well, today we're really beginning in earnest our study of the Sermon on the Mount, particularly the Beatitudes, those opening verses in chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount. As I said a few weeks ago with the two sermons of introduction uh, before my vacation, the words contained in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 are what we call the Sermon on the Mount. These are teachings of Jesus primarily for believers, for those who were at some level already his disciples, those who at some level had already come to believe in him as the Messiah. If you remember in Matthew 5, verses 1 through 2, talk about this. Um, we read that Jesus went up on the mountain and he sat down to teach. And his teaching is clearly in those verses directed toward his disciples. Now, there were larger crowds gathered around them, and they could certainly hear what was being said. But the primary focus was instructing his disciples. The Sermon on the Mount, as I said, begins with what is commonly known or what are commonly known as the Beatitudes. And Beatitudes are just a fancy, is a fancy word for blessings. That's what Beatitude or Beatitudes means. These blessings that Jesus speaks of here only come about in our lives as we yield ourselves to God. Aligning ourselves with the priorities of God's kingdom opens the gate to experiencing his kingdom's blessings both now and for all of eternity. But if we're not prepared, focused upon and living our lives for the world to come through Christ, we will never experience God's blessings now in the incredible ways he is more than willing to work in us, even here in this world. There are nine blessings or beatitudes which Jesus speaks of in Matthew chapter 5. And I'm going to take in the coming weeks each one of those individually, but I want to speak today of the first of these, which we see in Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So our time together today, I want to look at this verse and more fully understand what it means to be poor in spirit. And then once we've done that, um, to make some application about the relationship between being poor in spirit and the kingdom of heaven. So three points today, the first one being much longer than the second and the third. The first point is this, the prerequisite, being poor in spirit. This is the starting point. Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
I think the first question we need to ask that poses itself is, what does it mean to be blessed? Blessed. It's a term we hear people using fairly often, especially in church circles. Sometimes it can even shift into what I call churchy talk or church speak. What a blessing you are. I'm blessed. What a blessing something is. Have a blessed day. But what does it mean to be blessed in terms of the biblical understanding? Well, very simply, to be blessed is to receive or experience God's gracious favor. And usually in Scripture, the result of the blessing described is given as well. We see this in the, the example of today's Scripture. So we see, blessed are the poor in spirit. And the result of the blessing for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So there are some important principles we need to understand regarding this blessing and all of the blessings listed in the Beatitudes. And as I have been, um, even as I started this series, I want to give credit to Craig Keener and his commentary on Matthew's gospel, which I leaned on heavily. The blessings of the Beatitudes are for those persons who are already or who are ready for the kingdom's coming. In other words, believers, committed disciples of Jesus, and again, to quote Craig Keener, as I did for several weeks, the Beatitudes depict for us what kingdom-ready people look like, how kingdom-ready people live. Which leads us to two important principles here as we look at the prerequisite. One, kingdom-ready people don't try to force God's will on a world unprepared for it. Now, to be clear, we... We live and walk according to God's word. We, we are those lights shining in the darkness. We are that salt and light. But we don't force the kingdom upon people who are unwilling to receive or be open to it. And we certainly don't force the kingdom or bring about God's kingdom through temporal, um, carnal, earthly human means. You know, in first century Palestine, um, the Jews, many of the Jews, not, not all by any means, um, thought they were going to bring about God's kingdom through revolutionary violence. This was their belief in a solution. We have the example of one of the particular groups. We had a lot of different groups like the Zealots, but you had the, a group called the Sakari, and they were essentially first century Jewish terrorists. They carried um, small knives under their cloaks. That's where the name Sakari comes from. It was a sidecar. They carried under their, their cloaks, and they would go into crowds of people, and they would murder Roman officials. Or in one instance, um, they also would attack and murder Jews who they believed were colluding with Rome, and they went into, I think it was in AD 50-something, um, they went in amidst one of the big Jewish festivals and, and murdered the high priest. His name was Jonathan, stabbed him. Um, they thought they were going to somehow usher in God's kingdom through this sort of a thing. And the Sakari, along with a number of other events, resulted in the Jewish revolt in AD 66 through 72. And what was the outcome of that, if you know history? It, it led to the destruction of Jerusalem. But we still have people, whether it be in means that are that violent or maybe not quite that extreme, who think that through human efforts and through um, temporal processes, they're going to usher in God's kingdom or fully usher in God's kingdom. And that won't work because we are not setting or dictating God's timetable to him. The kingdom doesn't come to those in any generation 
who try to force God's hand, but instead it comes to those who patiently and humbly wait on God. And that's not indifference. That's not passivity, but it's an open waiting on God, aligning ourselves with God's heart and God's priorities, aligning ourselves with what God is already doing and working in the world. Kingdom-ready people don't try to force God's will on a world unprepared for it. Two, God favors the humble who trust in him rather than in their own strength. Think of the wording here in the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount. Poor in spirit, meek, peacemakers. In contrast to the folks we were just talking about and in opposition to the world around them, faithful Jews in the New Testament era valued humility. Despite a world around them, particularly Greek and Roman culture, that, that identified humility with weakness. Godly Christians value humility in a world that often equates godly Christ-honoring humility with weakness, even though it is not. Because it is not about us taking control. Rather, it is about us instead as believers and followers of Christ surrendering control to him. Again, that's not some sort of fatalism. What will be will be. But we yield and surrender ourselves to Christ and his will and his purposes. God's blessing, God's favor comes to those who are surrendered to him, to his will, his purposes, his plan, in his timing, and in his ways. Too often we want to look at the world around us. I shouldn't say we as All Saints Church, but among Christians. And we want to set the rules for ourselves based on the world rather than based on the rules and the guidelines and the principles that God has established. Um, a number of years ago, this is an illustration I think that helps to, to paint this picture, but there was a bicycle race. And this was very different than most bicycle races because most races you have a starting gun or someone in some way that signifies go and there's a defined distance and whoever gets to the finish line first wins. Well, this race, and I forget what city this took place in, was just the opposite. The idea was that there was a starting gun and then a set time that would elapse and the winner was the person who could stay upright on their bike for the entire time without their feet touching the ground and go the shortest distance. The complete, yeah, I'd kill myself. <laughs> but, but the complete opposite of what we typically would think of for rules in a race. So the person who went the furthest and, and got out ahead of everybody, that was the loser. The person who stayed closest to the starting line and stayed upright was the winner. But in God's kingdom, I know that's a kind of a silly illustration, but in God's kingdom... We have to align ourselves with God's way of doing things and not look to the world around us and not look to the secular and the temporal and somehow embrace those values and think we're going to accomplish God's will and run God's race in the weakness of the flesh. So we read that the poor in spirit are blessed. But what does it mean then? We've talked about what it means to be blessed. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Does it mean that there is merit and virtue and poverty, especially if it is self-inflicted? And the answer is no. Now, to be clear, God calls some people to live lives 
where they set aside almost all worldly goods. And he calls all of us as Christians to live lives of simplicity. But poverty is a virtue that is simply self-inflicted for the sake of inflicting it upon the self. The answer is no. That is not a virtue or merit necessarily in and of itself. The word used here in Matthew 5, 3 for poverty does speak of being absolutely destitute. But how is this linked with the concept of being poor in spirit? Certainly physical poverty, again, is not thrown out fully or discounted here, but neither is it elevated to the point of being a virtue in and of itself. In the Old Testament, to be poor often spoke of those in special need of God's help, of God's assistance. And these were often those who were physically poor. Psalm 12, verse 5 tells us, Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. Psalm 70, verse 5 says, But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. this kind of impoverished dependence upon God in both physical and spiritual terms became especially poignant, especially significant to God's people in captivity. We see this as they were oppressed and humiliated. And this is the precise sense in which poor is used in the Beatitudes, especially in the verse we are looking at this morning. It begins with acknowledging our brokenness, acknowledging our spiritual poverty before God apart from God. You know, there are things which those in poverty experience that actually creates an openness to God, sometimes that we don't see with those who are wealthy. Philip Yancey, in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, points out a couple of these ideas. The poor know that they are in urgent need of redemption. The poor know not only their dependence on God, but also their interdependence with one another. The poor have no exaggerated sense of their own importance, and no exaggerated need of privacy. The poor expect little from competition and much from cooperation. The poor can distinguish between necessities and luxuries. The fears of the poor are often more realistic and less exaggerated because they already know that one can survive great suffering and wants. And then finally, when the poor have the gospel preached to them, it sounds like good news and not like a threat or scolding. Sometimes talking about things like spiritual poverty are difficult for us and for people in our society to get their heads around. And again, it goes right back, I think, to this idea that is so prevalent, even in some Christian circles, of equating material wealth automatically with God's favor or approval. Material prosperity, the fact is, can blind us to our dependence upon God. Material prosperity can make us feel sometimes, in a false sense, pretty self-sufficient, where we think that we have need of nobody's help, including God's. And yet that kind of thinking will cause us to completely miss God and his kingdom. Rich people, and frankly, that in this context, and when we look at this, the biblical context and the context of our entire world, includes every single one of us sitting here today. Rich people often have little sense of one's need for God. We see this 
throughout the scriptures. That's why Jesus said it's easier for the camel to, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. We see a lack of valuing of simplicity, biblical simplicity. We so often in, in an affluent culture want to get and hang on to the things of this world and somehow even fall into the trap of placing our security in those things, a false security. Rather than owning up to our spiritual poverty, spiritual poverty, hear this, which is a prerequisite for relationship with God. It's a prerequisite for experiencing the blessing of God's kingdom because we must come to that place of acknowledging that apart from Christ, apart from God's redeeming work in us, we are spiritually bankrupt. As St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. What is the answer to this condition? It's the cross of Christ. It's the grace of God. It's the life and the fullness and the blessing that God offers us through a living relationship with Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 3, verses 17 through 18, we read this. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, speaking of Christ, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Augustus Toplady, who was an Anglican priest, by the way, who wrote the hymn Rock of Ages, captured it well in verse 2 of Rock of Ages, where we sing, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. If we think we have anything in and of ourselves to offer God, or somehow that God needs something or anything from us, or that we are owed anything, we're still not ready for his kingdom because we haven't come to grasp the riches of God's grace. Confessing, acknowledging our brokenness, our woundedness, our spiritual poverty to God, and our utter dependence upon him, and then casting ourselves upon his undeserved grace and mercy is the absolute prerequisite to experiencing the blessings of his kingdom. The prerequisite, being poor in spirit. Second, the present reality of God's kingdom. And my second and third points, as I said, are much shorter than the first today. There are really two aspects of God's kingdom life we enter into when we throw ourselves on God's mercy and his provision for us in Jesus Christ. First, there is, as I just said, the present reality. And it's important to know to note, rather, that verse 3 in Matthew 5 is in the present tense. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Not theirs will be, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yes, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God coming in fullness and completeness is yet to come. But there is already a reality of God's kingdom to be lived in, even while we are living in this age that is passing away. We as God's people, 
as outposts of the kingdom of heaven can still live in the qualities of the age to come here and now. But it begins with being poor in spirit. As citizens of his kingdom, we can walk in the qualities of that kingdom, of his eternal heavenly kingdom, even here and now. And we can experience blessings that the world does not know, the world cannot understand, and the world can never offer to us. Blessings like righteousness, freedom, joy, peace. And we are not bound as we yield ourselves to God, as we throw ourselves open to him and his work in our lives. We are not bound by this world or tethered to the things of this world. And let us be careful very careful not to allow ourselves to somehow become too tightly tethered to this world and its stuff. And then finally, the promised future of the kingdom. There is a bright future promised for each of us who has taken this condition of spiritual poverty to heart, who have not allowed ourselves to be deceived by the attraction of the world and its fleeting wealth and riches, but we've allowed God to open our eyes and see things as they really are. There is a bright future for those who have set aside self-promotion and self-interest by God's grace and surrendered the priorities of Christ and his kingdom. And when his kingdom comes in fullness and as Christ brings his kingdom to bear, the things of this world will be stood on their head. Christ will set things aright. Those who think they're on their top in this world will find themselves on the bottom. In the, the, the series that was produced by PBS and Ken Burns in the 1990s on the Civil War, some of you are old enough to remember like I was when that came out. Um, some of you weren't even born yet. But um, in one of the episodes, Shelby Foote, who did a lot of commentary in that series, um, speaks of a Union soldier, an African-American Union soldier who had been an enslaved person prior to being a Union soldier. And after one of the battles, um, he was walking um, through the rear of the lines and there were a group of Confederate prisoners there. And among those prisoners was his old master from when he was an enslaved person. And he looked at his master and said, well, master, the bottom rail's on top now, isn't it? But that's what God is doing through the coming of Christ's kingdom. A reversal of the things of this world. God is setting things of this world aright. And that will not be fully accomplished until Christ's return. But God will set aside aright things that are brought about by the brokenness and sin in this world. Things like poverty that is caused by spiritual evil, physical poverty, not spiritual poverty. And he will crush pride and the low will be exalted. And those who in this secular temporal world see themselves as high and exalted will be brought down according to the priorities of God's kingdom. I want to conclude with a quote by Henry Nouwen, who is one of my favorite authors and my favorite book of his, which is a little tiny book called The Selfless Way of Christ. And in it, Nowen says this. The disciple is the one who follows Jesus on his downward path and thus enters with him into new life. The gospel radically subverts the presuppositions of our upwardly mobile society. It is a jarring and unsettling challenge. Somewhere deep in our hearts, we already know that success, fame, 
influence, power, and money do not give us, give us the inner joy and peace we crave. Somewhere we can even sense a certain envy of those who have shed all false ambitions and found a deeper fulfillment in their relationship with God. Yes, somewhere we can even get a taste of that mysterious joy in the smile of those who have nothing to lose. Then we begin to perceive that the downward road is not the road to hell, but the road to heaven. Keeping this in mind can help us accept the fact that in the reign of God, the poor are the messengers of the good news. What the world would, the world would call an upward road is really a downward road. And what we would call a downward road really is an upward road because it calls us higher in Christ and being more and more set free from this world and the stuff of this world. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we yield ourselves to God and we throw ourselves open to him and we acknowledge that we desperately need him in our lives in increasing measure. He will fill us more and more and more and we will experience in greater fullness the realities of his kingdom that is yet to come even in this world and even now. Let us pray. So Father, thank you that we come empty-handed, but as we throw our arms open to you, you fill us with your presence. You fill us with your life. You fill us with the good things of your kingdom. And you satisfy us in a way that the world never can. Father, help us to not hold tightly to the things of this world, but to cling tightly to you to the cross of Christ, to the power of your grace in our lives. And Lord, bring to pass in our lives and in the life of this church the values and the priorities of your kingdom that we could be outposts of the kingdom of heaven even here and now and use mightily as your people to accomplish your will in our time by your grace and by your power at work in us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.